This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm your host, Bob Ausman, and I'm pleased to have joining me today, Joseph Michelli uh, on the podcast. Joseph, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Welcome. Thank you. I am a certified customer experience professional, so we share some background. Um, and I have been consulting for businesses now for about 30 years, and every once in a while I write a book about one of my clients. That's great, Joseph. And uh, and he's and he's right. There's some really cool books that he's written about his clients uh, to take a look at. But Joseph, one of the things our listeners really love is to hear the career paths. Like, how did you get doing what you're doing? A lot of times, people don't wake up one day and say, "I want to be in customer experience." Or, but how did you get doing what you're doing? Give us a little of your background and and your career journey. Bob, it's embarrassing. I think I was, I've been around so long. I was around before <laughs> customer experience was a thing. So I could have never imagined waking up and doing it. Um, frankly, I, I studied, uh, I got a PhD in clinical psychology and organizational systems at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Really fluky that I would even go to college. Neither of my parents had, and they had no money really available, but had some blessings and a scholarship and got through the University of Denver, University of Southern California with those um, doctorate kind of things. And in the course of that journey, got to work with uh, a little fish market in Seattle, Washington, uh, doing some consulting to help them with their floundering fish business. And um, it turned out that business did pretty well. And there was a great video uh, produced about it, a training video called Fish, uh, and a great book written by Ken Blanchard and his team. And that really pulled a spotlight onto this little fish market that was throwing fish and creating a differentiated experience. And that brought me back into conversations with people and the owner of that market and I ended up writing our first book together about his little fish market. And then from there, it's been a series of other consulting and, and book writing over the, the rest of my career. You know, that's amazing, that link to fish, because of the company I worked for at the time, we all pursued that book. And I had the opportunity to actually go visit the fish market. And I was like a little kid in a candy store. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the market where the book was written, and and it was really pretty fascinating. And the and the people at the counter really made a big deal out of it. So it was a lot of fun to experience that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the the concept for those who were aware of it, they were, they had like make my day and choose your attitude and you know have play and. It was interesting because those are all derivatives of things that came out of really focusing on the customer and doing intensive listening and and being on purpose in the way you served others. Mm -hmm. And Joseph, just a little bit too about your educational background. Um, I've encountered a, a few guests that have gone into the uh, psychology arenas and so forth as part of uh, kind of understanding the experience, what, what drew you to that? What, what inclined you to that field? 
So I was a I was a clinical psychologist practicing at a hospital uh, for a period mm-hmm. of time, and then I got into hospital administration, which meant I was trying to move systems together to make change happen as opposed to individuals. And at that particular point in time, we had the Seventh Day Adventists and the Catholics merging in a hospital system, and I was kind of trying to figure out how to run through these faith traditions and come up with something that would be uniform. I think it was at that point in time that I started to realize that the thing we had in common was trying to deliver a quality clinical experience and quality clinical outcomes. And so uh, we weren't doing quite as well on the clinical experience as we were on the outcomes. So that's really where I put most of my time. Hmm. Uh, You haven't written a book about the Catholics and the Seventh-day Adventists, have you? Because that might have been an interesting one as well. No, I I think that I would have gotten it from every side. That's the way it felt (laughs) when we were trying to pull it off. I can only imagine. Um, Joseph, from your viewpoint, what is the state of customer experience where we're at right now? I mean, you think of supply chain issues and the pandemic and labor shortages and and the economy, and it just goes on and on. From your view, where are we at? Well, it's a beautiful train wreck right now. There's so many elements that are elegant and fabulous and spectacular, and I can talk to those. And and then we've got this disaster going on all at the same time. You know, ACMI, the American Customer uh, uh, Satisfaction Index, uh, Mm -hmm. I said MI, ACSI, the American Customer Satisfaction Index now is at, at I think, 14-year low. Um, clearly customers are not satisfied with the experiences they're getting and largely that supply chain and, and employee driven. Um, at the same time, there's some really amazing things happening on the technologies. We saw a digital transformation for many brands on a roadmap that might have five years of expediting technologies to improve the customer experience delivered in weeks, right? So it's a little of both. And I think the key is to figuring out how do we treat our employees well enough and desirable enough and create a great experience for them so that they'll stay with us and be able to serve the folks who pay for the lights and the electricity and the water and all that. So I think really trying to figure out how to how to do that has been really challenging, but leveraging technologies enables customers to choose many times between a self-serve or a human-powered interaction. And I think we've really improved on the self-service side of most interactions from a delivery of experience. Mm-hmm. And and from, I mean, you bring in the employee experience and there's a lot of discussion around that uh, these days. Uh, is how do we link them? And everybody has a different different take on this. How do we link employee experience to customer experience? But I mean, isn't that really the starting point right now is is our employees and our ability to to get people um, to deliver the customer experience? Yeah, I think it starts with a philosophical perspective, either you hold or you don't. And that is that we're in business to serve people, you know, and if that's the case, then we first start as leaders by serving the team members who are with us. And if we do that well, we encourage and inspire them to do that for those we serve. I think you're also selecting people who have otherness. So, you know, you want to definitely take care of the people you select, but you also want to select people who are capable of not just sucking all that great love up and not putting it back out into the universe. So I, I think it's very doable, but it starts with leaders really committing to servant leadership. Um, and from there, inspiring their people and giving them the tools 
to excel in the way they deliver experiences. And, and I don't want to confuse service and experience, and I'm sure we'll get into kind of the enriched levels of what it is an experience. But for all practical intents and purposes, it's a fundamental belief that I am here to serve you. And that is a noble uh, profession. Mm-hmm. And, well, why is that so difficult sometimes for us to realize that? Because we're raised in a society, I think, where we think it's about us. Um, If you go on social media, we think our opinions matter so much that we're righteous and indignant to people who hold different ones. I think we are socialized right now to look at me, to to be an influencer, to be a TikTok star. And I think it's hard for us to realize it's not about you. Uh, In the end, if you want to be successful, calling all the cameras to you is not really the way to do it. Even if you somehow squeak through a small crack to make that happen, uh, people tend not to over the long haul root for you. Um, I, I think that what they want is someone who makes them feel better. And the more we understand that, the less we have what I call, you know, the syndrome of going to like a, you know, a chamber of commerce meeting and everybody's selling and nobody buying, right? It, you know, you're just not handing out cards. You're not constantly trying to get attention. You're trying to make the people around you better. And when you do that, you get a lot of attention. You know, one of the interesting things about that, uh, what you're suggesting is um, during the summer, we're up in northern Wisconsin, which are, you know, populated by resorts and um, restaurants and and various activities, lake related activities. And one of the things we notice is some restaurants are closing early or not being able to open at all because they can't get um, servers, bartenders, and so forth, while others uh, are thriving and seem to have all the help they need. And, and my wife and I were just talking about this the other day at dinner saying, why, why the difference? Is it around leadership? Is it around attitude? I think it is around leadership. I think it is around attitude. I think it's about looking for those people in the universe who really are committed to greatness by serving others. And I, I don't know that, you know, that this, the talent pool is challenging sometimes to find that in, but it's amazing how great servant leaders find those kinds of people. And, you know, I look at someone like a Horst Schultze, who I had the good fortune of working with when he was, he was the founder of the modern day Ritz Carlton hotel company. He was at Capella at the time, but he uh, just, you know, from his, from a youth, he wanted to be a service professional. He wanted to be a hotel AA. He wanted to do all of the scut work it took to come up through the ranks of the artisan traditions of Europe. And he did all of that and he becomes the head of a extraordinary uh, hotel chain. And all that time was still aspiring to be better, to be better able to serve others, more, more polished, if you will. Um, so I, I think that the, those folks are somewhat rare to find, but those folks bring in folks like them. Mm-hmm. So true. And, and, you know, when you get a great experience from an organization, from an individual, you know it right away. You, you, you don't need to describe it. You just know you got it. And yet, you know, when you've got a bad one as well, what is causing organizations, what's encumbering organizations to being able to deliver on a great experience every time, not just once in a while. And, and Ritz-Carlton is a, is a prime example. I'm sure they have challenging experiences sometimes, but they also have great recovery processes in place. So how does that organization versus another organization not able to deliver great experiences all the time? 
First, Bob, I always love these questions from someone like you, who I know knows probably a better answer than I'm about to give. So <laughs> thank you for the, the humility with which you asked that question. And now just uh, grade me against what you know is the right answer. Um, you know, the I, for me, something like a Ritz-Carlton is a culture where it's not about squashing errors. It's really about letting people see how to do the work better all the time. So it's a continuous learning environment. Um, you know, they track something called Mr. Bibs, which are mistakes, reworks, you know, breakdowns, variations, inefficiencies and the like. And so they get people to really say, hey, we didn't do that well. What can we learn? Um, and it's not an environment where people are, you know, CYAing it all day long, trying to act as though there were no errors and thus not learning from the nature of it. Business is complex. People are going to make errors. There are going to be pain points. Uh, and I think some organizations just have a, a an open spirit about how do we improve instead of how do we assume we're supposed to be perfect from the start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make uh, about that. I also want to tag on to that. Um, as I was prepping for our session together, you, you published a recent article about enhancing experience and boosting sales. And what, what appealed to me about that article was the call out about boosting sales and, and the fact that it can come from enhancing experiences. Tell us a little bit more about um, that article and your thoughts about it. Well, you know, there's been some research that said one of the main reasons customer experience initiatives don't succeed is because they all seem like everybody wants to have them. They're all feel good. Who doesn't want to have better customer experiences? But when you look at the incentives in an organization, they're completely lined up against success there. So you've got all these managers nodding, yes, we want great customer experiences, but oh my gosh, if I actually did what it took to get there, I would lose revenue for my cost center. Same is true for a lot of salespeople. I think they sometimes believe that these are, you know, opposites like work and play. Um, and I, my goal is to suggest that it's a noble thing to provide products to customers and sell them to those customers and do it in an environment that nurtures that customer along the way, that isn't abusive to the customer in order to get a sale. And, and it's just trying to soften that dialogue. You know, I think if you look at nonprofits, you know, there there is no mission without money in the nonprofit space, right? So we can't make money or sales an evil concept in the customer experience space. And at the same time, if we can help people realize the better experiences you give people, you may not only sell the person today, but you increase the probability you're going to have a referral, you increase the probability you're going to retain that customer. So to me, it's an and, not an or. Mm -hmm. And Joseph, the other topic that typically comes up in these conversations is, well, I'm B2B, I'm not B2C, or somebody throws in a B to B2C, or you know, I'm, I, you mentioned it, I'm nonprofit, uh, not for profit, I'm for profit. All of those factors come into play. Do those come into play in what you're suggesting as an approach to experience, uh, good experiences? Well, yes and no. I mean, you, 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 if you don't say yes, all the people just stop listening who have already pre <laughs> preconceived view of that. So I obviously have to say yes. Uh, but, but I think if you take it a little bit deeper, you know, we are human beings uh, in businesses. Um, yes, the, the purchase cycles are slower. The stickiness is higher in the B2B. Um, there could be multi-level customers. There's a lot to it. I don't want to mislead anybody to think it's as simple as just getting a consumer to buy a cup of coffee at a Starbucks. I mean, B2B is a complex beast, but at the same time, you're dealing with people. And we often underestimate how important it is for 
for Bob to be able to call Joseph in a business and Joseph to take you very seriously, listen to you and get a sense of urgency about the way I provide you your care, uh, let you know that your business matters to me, uh, remind you that I am in a referral business in case you're with a group of colleagues somewhere and, and they're looking for someone who provides my services. All those things are true whether I am selling coffee or I'm selling large uh, manufacturing goods in a, in a B2B space. Um, I just, I think we sometimes make it more complicated than that. People make decisions in business much more justified by logic, reason, and numbers, but they're still as prone to the emotional safety, trust issues that we have in any other form of commerce. Do you think we tap in uh, enough to the emotional side or are we too metric-based, analytics-based? when we're trying to create great experiences? I think some people um, tap into it. I think that is the differentiator between brands that that really have top of heart with consumers uh, as opposed to top of mind. Um, and I think that that's the difference between delight and satisfaction. It is that awareness that I need to satisfy you. I need to meet expectations. And then I need to do something slightly more. I also need to understand what the emotional driver is for you and connect with that emotional driver authentically. Uh, or if I can't, to send you to somebody else, which will connect with the emotional driver of trust. Um, you know, Zappos is a great example, just really quickly on it. I'm, you know, Zappos, one of the things that Tony implemented uh, when I was there was this notion that if somebody could not get the shoes they wanted when they called in, that you would refer them to a competitor. Uh, it was amazing to me because so often we would never do that. We don't have it, but we're not sure as heck not going to send you down the street to somebody who competes against us. And it was interesting because we start tracking data on that gift of a referral so you could get your needs met as opposed to avoiding that conversation so we might not lose you. And interestingly enough, you didn't lose them. People came back. <laughs> they came back and they were very grateful uh, just because you didn't have it last time. You were good enough to make sure I got it. And so I'm looking back to you again the next time. Yeah, it really is going above and beyond that that builds that loyalty. Um, Joseph, you've consulted with a number of the greatest companies in the world and and uh, written books about them. What are the ingredients that you've seen that are common among those? You've talked about servant leadership as one example, but what are those other ingredients that you've seen that are common among these companies that you've worked with? Well, I am blessed to have a lot of companies where the CEO is all in, right? And mm -hmm. I think if you have that, it really increases the likelihood you're gonna be world-class. Um, I, I warn because I know a lot of people who are listening might not have you know, super senior leaders who are in the space. And so you have to lead up and you keep leading up until they don't listen and you find another opening where people do. And before you know it, you'll be the CEO. Uh, who's doing this this customer centric thing? So I think having a CEO at the helm with full in is always helpful. I think knowing what you want everybody to feel every single time, no excuses, is pretty critical. So most of my brands, you know, have what I call a way we serve statement, uh, meaning this is the way we want every customer to experience us, and sh this is what we want them to say about us when they leave. And so it's not just about checking the boxes operationally; it's about trying to create an experience where that's going to be said, an experience that has all the right sensory elements, you. Know, auditory, gustatory, olfactory, whatever it might be, 
all wrapped in to make sure that we increase the probability they're going to say it. They're brands that I think understand moments. They understand that you can't execute flawlessly every single interaction, particularly if you have a long relationship with customers. But what you can do is pay particular attention to what we know from from behavioral economics about what's going to be memorable to customers. So, you know, openings, endings, transitions, peak moments, pain moments, all those things they pay attention to and they execute against it. So that's my short list. Uh, Too bad I hadn't thought about that one. (laughs) (laughs) I spend my days and nights trying to help brands figure out how do we just execute a a small number of things really, really well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a good point. So a couple of things based on what you just said is one is uh, executing a few things really, really well. I mean, we've got this boil the ocean syndrome that that occurs in some companies, especially if they're operating from a burning platform. You know, my experience sucks. I got to do something about it. And so yet we're trying to solve everything and and trying to focus on a few things to do really well. That's, I mean, th- that seems to be difficult to do. Am I? Am no, I you're absolutely right. I have a friend who's a professor uh, kind of like you and he, uh, he said, you know, once upon a time, there was a, a brand that made a great hamburger and a great milkshake and a great fries, and they called themselves McDonald's. And over time, they lost their cachet because they started venturing into all kinds of other things that they didn't know as well. And then you have another brand show up like Five Guys that does, you know, great French fries. And he said, you know, that the world's always going to have room for the people who execute their core products exquisitely if they can just stay disciplined and focused on what they do. And I'm not at the product level so much. I'm just talking mm-hmm. about executing arrivals, executing executing departures and executing transitions. And, you know, I, I'll go into a car dealership and we'll work on that. And it really makes a difference. I'll go into a car manufacturer and help the entire dealership network do that. And it makes a difference. So, um, yeah, I think we make it really, really hard and we can't succeed when it's when we're trying to juggle that many that, that many balls in the air. Mm-hmm. Another comment you made was about you've worked with companies where the CEO is all in. And I know our listeners are saying to themselves, I can't get my CEO's attention. Um, you know, should I dive in anyway? Is there any magic bullet to getting a CEO to pay attention? To well, that's why I write books. Is? So people can anonymously <laughs> put them on their CEO's desk and then run. Um no, I, I, you know, I think this is a constant conversation. And, and unfortunately, the biggest challenge for most of them is seeing the ROI. Uh, so what, or I like to call it ROE, what's the return on experience, right? How, what am I going to get if I improve the arrival experience? What, what's this going to get me, right? Particularly now, I can't even find anybody, but uh, what, what's it going to get me? And, and I, I think that's a hard one because most of us don't have the data that really shows what you get. And so we extrapolate data and we say, well, if you have a net promoter score of this, you're likely to have this kind of revenue based on all kinds of different industries. But does it even really apply in my world? You know, so there are brands I work with where net promoter doesn't really apply because they have one big purchase and they're not expected to see a customer again for a long, long, long time. Uh, and it doesn't really predict the repurchase that far out into the future for this brand. So I think you just have to do your best to knit together your your KPIs, show a return on experience, and constantly champion that conversation as best you can. And if you, like I say, if you really can't make it happen, there are plenty of organizations out there that authentically have leaders who are willing to try to make this better. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's it's been my experience where uh, where uh, they might call them 
tiger teams or, you know, under the radar teams that they can't get the CEO's involvement. So they just try to make their changes on their own. Have you seen that to be successful at all in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in silos, right. And they, and they mm-hmm. do well for their customers and their segment. And yeah, it's, it's hard unless you knit together multi-teams uh, it's hard to get enough enterprise wide lift to pull that kind of attention all the way to the top. But yeah, people stand out as teams and sometimes they get recognized and that that's a breakthrough for the organization. And um, yeah, occasionally it, it tips the mm-hmm. scale, but it, often you just need enough magnitude to, to hit the tipping point. Right. I do like that return on experience because there's certainly plenty out there about ROI, but perhaps we're applying financial measurements to something that has a financial component, but may be the same, may not be the single thing that we need to look at when it comes to experiences. And not all and the, the experience uh, strategies really are that expensive, right? Uh, so it's, I mean, I don't always, I think we just, how much do we invest in the experience, whether that's time, money, effort, teamwork. Um, so that, that's kind of how I get into that calculus. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Really good thoughts. So Joseph, where where are we headed in experience management these days with everything that we've talked about in terms of the turmoil and, and where are we going? What's your We're all going to just be a bunch of avatars uh, <laughs> trading NFTs with Bitcoin. I don't, I, that's kind of <laughs> it. I think we've got it all figured out. You know, I am an optimist for people. Um, you know, if anything, the pandemic showed such a pent up need for human contact. We're seeing, you know, travel on a rebound right now. Um, human beings will use technology to make their lives incre- incredibly efficient. It's ironic for all of the technology. I think most of us still feel like we don't have enough time. Um, and and I think what you're going to see are people who are capable of building a brand where most of the interactions are digital and technologically driven, but people are going to be available. And those people are going to be special in terms of the way they connect with, answer questions, solve problems, fix technology breakdowns. And that's the future. So we may have less human service providers in the grand scheme of things, but I think they're going to be called upon to be uniquely human. And I doubt uh, no matter how cool the metaverse looks that we're going to hopefully be convinced that those are real people uh, in those avatars, um, you know, that, that that is the same as what we get when we, we hug a person or smile at a person in real life. You know, I read an article recently about millennials, um, you know, want to conduct business digitally and don't really want to talk to anybody until there's a problem. And then they want somebody instantly available to solve their problem as a profile of their purchasing behavior. And that's, it's kind of like what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's another thing about this. I mean, they want a human to celebrate them. Uh, You know, they want that. Uh, So there's plenty of data to suggest that all of us are looking for the loving eyes of another human being, um, in addition to the ease of technology. And so for me, fix my problem, human. Uh, Smile at me, celebrate me, uh, delight in me, and give me great technology. Hmm. I like that. Those are. That's an excellent approach to take. Um, Joseph, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I always ask my guests the same final question, and that is, what words of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners? 
Yeah, I think we've said it in one way or another here. The it's not about you message. I think this is a great opportunity to serve others. Uh, right now, the world needs humans who want to serve, and you will never, never in the long run lose out in terms of your own personal success if you make others successful. That's really it for me, and it's been. I mean, I'm, I've experienced a level of success I never could have imagined in my life. And it was only because Mama Michelli says, you better take care of other people and stop thinking about yourself, boy. And um, <laughs> it's pretty much proven to be, <laughs> Mama's right about a lot of things, but I would never have told her. <laughs> True. Uh, Joseph uh, Michelli, uh, if there's uh, people want to learn more, uh, what's the best source to learn more about you and, and what you do? I'm shamelessly all over the web. If you can spell my name, you can find me. My website is josephmichelli.com and my Twitter handle is Joseph Michelli and my LinkedIn is Joseph Michelli. You you get the drift. So J-O-S-E-P-H-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I. Fantastic. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. I'm a huge fan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. And listeners, this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm your host, Bob Aswin. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your network. And as always, stay tuned for future episodes of this podcast as part of the CXFM radio network of podcasters and now also available on YouTube. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show. Follow me on LinkedIn and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.